Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we're looking at the UK Biobank, the world's most comprehensive set of human health data, which is providing a vital global resource for scientific and medical research. Darren Dodd talks to Claire Elwell, Professor of Medical Physics at University College London, Cathy Sodlow, Chief Scientist at the UK Biobank, and Clive Cookson, FT Science Editor, about how it came about and how it's being used by the research community worldwide. Claire, let's start with you. Can you give us Biobank for Beginners? What's the project all about and how did it start? So the UK Biobank was established in 2006, essentially to collect data from 500,000 volunteer participants. So this includes health, lifestyle, medical and biological data to give actually the world's most comprehensive set of information on healthy individuals. And the aim of the Biobank was for this resource to be used essentially to improve health. Cathy, tell us how the Biobank came about and how you got involved. I remember Biobank first being talked about in the late 1990s when I was working on a DPhil in Oxford and some of the professors and other scientists were starting to have conversations with the Wellcome Trust and the MRC, the UK Medical Research Council. These individuals came from an epidemiology or population health background and from a genetics background. They were brainstorming the idea that the UK would be a very good place to build a very large cohort, much larger than had previously been built, that had both breadth and depth of characterization of its participants who would be volunteers from around the UK. There were several years of discussions, a lot of doubt about whether this was actually something that could be pulled off. The funders, the MRC and the Welcome at that stage and the Department of Health were very supportive, stuck with it and eventually under the leadership of Rory Collins, the CEO from 2005 to now, Biobank started to recruit its participants. So 500,000 adults in middle age were recruited into this major study from about 22 centres all around the UK and it was a major operation that required a partnership between scientists and process management, industrial management people with its beating heart in Stockport, the coordinating centre, and then serious academic contributions from University of Oxford, University of Edinburgh and many other scientists as well. So these participants were extensively characterised through answering questions, through having physical measures, and they donated samples. And that formed the kernel of UK Biobank, a massive database that was collected between 2006 and 2010. And then those individuals have been followed up prospectively since then. And I joined the project in 2011, and a large part of my responsibility has been to take on the follow-up, which for half a million people is not something you can do in your outpatient clinic That's involved linking to data that's held by and provided by the NHS largely and other health-relevant data sets. And all the participants gave explicit consent to be part of this project and for that follow-up to occur. Their data is held in a large, secure database. Their privacy is protected. And during the follow-up, we've added and enhanced the characterization of those participants with the aim of providing a data set that can be accessed and used by scientists all over the world in the global scientific community, from universities and academia, from charities and from industry, to conduct research studies that could not be done without access to this very large data collection. Clive, you've got a rather personal connection to this project. Tell us a little bit about that. I have indeed. I think I epitomise the makeup of the UK Biobank's 500,000 volunteers, which are 
healthy, white, and question mark, wealthy. Healthy, wealthy, and white. I was invited to take part as part of the 40 to 69-year-old age group. I won't say which end of that I'm nearer. I went along right at the end of 2009 to a centre that had been set up in suburban Hounslow. I spent a couple of hours there doing quite an intensive series of tests, psychological tests, intelligence tests. They'd measured my bone strength, my fitness. I answered quite a lot of questions about my lifestyle. After a couple of hours, they gave me a very short readout of obvious facts about me, like I was 7.8 kilos too heavy, although everything else was all right. And that's it. Part of the conditions for taking part is that you understand that whatever they find out subsequently by analysing your genes won't go back to you. So you don't get back any personal benefit, but hopefully you're benefiting biomedical research. Cathy, you mentioned enhancements. How has the study been expanded since the first samples were taken? During the enhancements, we've been able to add in additional data that would not really have been conceived as being possible even a decade or so ago. For example, we've been able to collect three-dimensional objective measures of physical activity from 100,000 of our participants by mailing out special watch-like accelerometers, glorified Fitbits, if you like. And we've also been able to start collecting data that monitors people's heart rhythms. We've done that in several thousand people. We've re-invited many thousands of our participants and we will, over the next few years, get up to 100,000 participants who are coming back and having whole body imaging using MRI scanning and some other scanning modalities from head to knee to give information on the structure and function of organs and their relationship to disease. And the sample collection has been subject to extensive analyses, primarily genotyping, so genome-wide genotyping of the entire half million set of participants, which is all on a scale that had not previously been imagined possible. With the availability of those data, the scientific community creating an enormous amount of activity in terms of interrogation and production of really interesting results that are starting to transform understanding of disease. Claire, you've been writing the FT about some of the applications of the data. Tell us a little bit about those. So what's fascinated me is the maturity of genetics research now, being able to develop algorithms to investigate millions of locations on the human genome and then look at genetic variations across this very large scale of genome locations and then link these variants to actual health. But to do that, you need access to a large data bank of human health data, which is what the UK Biobank provides. And the most recent study that we reported on that's come out of Boston has been able to identify clinically significant risk. So, for example, more than 5 million Britons have triple the normal risk of heart disease and almost half a million UK women have triple the risk of breast cancer. So this is combining this algorithm development and computational development that's going on in lots of genetics labs all over the world with this UK biobank data that's enabling us to generate these clinically significant risk scores. And I think the other thing that's important about the approach that UK biobank has had is that the raw and processed data that comes out of these studies is returned back into Biobank as a resource for other researchers. It's an open access resource and I think that that's a really important part of how the UK investment has been made for the benefit of biomedical research globally. Clive, some of these data is being used in consumer products as well. Tell us a little bit about those. 
Yes, we've talked about UK Biobank. We've talked about the 100,000 genomes, which is looking in more detail at people's DNA and genes and feeding back information. But on a much larger scale still and rapidly growing are consumer companies, of which 23andMe in Silicon Valley is the best known. There, people pay to take their tests. Typically, I think it's about 99 They don't have their whole genome sequence, but they have key parts and they get fed back information directly. They too sign a form saying that the research can be exploited by industry or by academics. And this summer, GlaxoSmithKline, the big UK drug company, announced a big deal with 23andMe where they would collaborate on drug discovery using some of the DNA data that 23andMe customers had supplied. Now, I'm not sure whether the consent form signed by those customers actually made clear that other companies would be making a lot of money out of it. And there has been some kickback by consumer advocates in the US saying some of the proceeds, if that does produce big lucrative pharmaceutical products, should go back somehow into research or even back to the participants if you could find a way of doing that. There are also some worries that could potentially lead to discrimination by health insurers, for example. Yes, there's quite a lot of legislation and regulation around the world to stop that happening. And I think in this country and most others, health and life insurers can't directly use adverse information. But it works two ways, and it could destroy the basis of health and life insurance if the insurers can't use the information but individuals can use their information. So you could have people who know that they're very healthy avoiding insurance, people who know they're unhealthy taking it in, and the whole basis of risk-sharing on which insurance is based would collapse. Cathy, if we could come back to you. We said the UK biobanks skewed towards the healthy, wealthy and white Europeans, as it were, but you're actually working on other projects which widen that database. Tell us a little bit about those. The first thing to say, I think, is that although on average our biobank participants, when we follow them up through death and cancer registries and hospital admissions and primary care data and so on, turn out to have lower disease rates and lower death rates, for example, than their age-matched counterparts in the average British population, there is nonetheless a great deal of variety within the cohort. So there are people who are socioeconomically deprived. There are people who come from ethnic minority groups. There are people who are more at the not-so-healthy end of the spectrum within the cohort. So for any characteristic you look at, there is a huge range and great variety representing all parts of the spectrum. It's just that the balance within the cohort is not exactly the same as the balance you would get if you just randomly sampled from the UK population. And that's very important. It means that you can't use a resource like Biobank to estimate how common a disease is referable to the UK population. But you can use it to generate really useful information about the relationship between risk factors for disease and those disease outcomes across a very wide spectrum of diseases, heart disease, stroke, dementia, osteoarthritis, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, anything that people in middle age might be likely to experience as they get older. 
So that's one important point to make. And then in terms of enriching the environment around the world, in terms of cohorts that can contribute to this scientific endeavor of discovering more about the causes and the potential ways of preventing and treating diseases and predicting them and working out who's at risk and why some people get disease and some others don't. There is a need for more cohorts to build on the biobank model, and there are many other cohorts around of now similar size with a community growing that's learning from each other. And UK Biobank has very much been in a vanguard position here in terms of providing advice to other large cohort endeavours on how we've done it and ways in which they might do it. So several of these cohorts are run from the University of Oxford, like the China Kaduri Biobank, which is similar in size to UK Biobank started recruiting before UK Biobank, but has learned from UK Biobank and vice versa as well in terms of the types of methods and approaches that are useful. And obviously in China, they're recruiting a very different ethnic group in a very different cultural context with a different spectrum of diseases that are important, with some being more common than others. And that leads to a different spectrum of potential discovery. UK Biobank's been very involved in advising the US in their precision medicine initiative that's now been labelled All of Us, which was one of the major announcements made by Barack Obama as a major scientific investment before he left office. And Biobank has been very intimately involved in providing advice to that initiative, which aims to recruit a million people from around the US into a similar cohort with an emphasis on diversity, including ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity, with some differences in methodology due to the different way in which the health system works and the different way in which science works there, but with some key and important lessons to be learned. And again, transfer of knowledge back the other way, where developments in the US are going to benefit Biobank as it moves forward because cohorts are dynamic things. We're talking about prospective studies here which carry on for decades and decades continuing to produce more and more valuable findings potentially as time goes by. I think the other important point about UK Biobank is that there are no barriers for commercial entities having access to the data. So the UK Biobank doesn't hold the intellectual property and commercial companies are able to access the data going through the same procedures as an academic party would do. My understanding is that this is again to ensure that the best possible outcome is made of this data for the greatest good. And another important point to make is that genomic data from different sources is increasingly being melded together. There was a study recently on cannabis and the effect of cannabis on the brain where the researchers combined 23andMe commercial data with UK Biobank data. And that's going to happen more and more, I'm sure. Great. So, Cathy, turning to the bigger picture, this project has had a lot of investment from the UK and it's certainly got a lot of research kudos. What would it deliver for UK science in the years to come? I think we're really starting to now see, after years of investment, some major findings starting to come out that are transforming health, that are transforming understanding of a very wide range of diseases that affect people in middle and later life. And that is happening much faster and at a scale that would never have happened without the breadth and depth of data held by the resource and the open science agenda, which is enabling a very broad spectrum of researchers to run experiments that are transforming science and medical science already. That was Darren Dodd talking to scientists Cathy Sodlow and Claire Elwell and the FT's Clive Cookson. Thanks for listening. 
you can sign up to the FT's weekly health briefing at ft.com health. We'll be back with more news tomorrow, but in the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our latest subscription offers at ft.com offer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.